and welcome to the second Sunday Salon Isolation Special. This week, as we all adjust to life under lockdown, I'm talking to Gina Martin, author of Be The Change, a toolkit for the activist in you. You probably know Gina because of her amazing campaign against upskirting. In June 2017, a man took a photo up her skirt at a music festival. The police told her that this was not a sexual offence and that the man would not be charged. Instead of accepting this, Gina took action, launching a campaign to make upskirting a criminal offence. 18 months later, she succeeded. In her book, Gina recounts how she found the courage and stamina to do this and offers readers a guide to campaigning in their own societies. I thought she'd be a great person to speak to now about how we can make positive changes even in these difficult circumstances and how we can get involved in fundraising and local initiatives. But we also discussed why it's okay to sometimes be unproductive and to feel helpless, as well as how she has been handling the upheaval, health concerns and loss of work caused by the coronavirus pandemic. I love talking to her and I hope you enjoy our interview. So, Gina, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'm really grateful, particularly under the circumstances. Oh, thank you for having me. How are you? I mean, we're both in lockdown, I suppose, or or in isolation. Who are you isolating with and, and, and how's it going? It's going okay. I've been isolating, I think, for a bit longer than maybe was necessary because I, about three weeks ago, did a TED Talk. And my housemate got really sick right before that. So I've kind of been not left the house now for just over two weeks. Right. Um, wow. Which has been interesting. And to be honest, I'm kind of, I'm isolating with my partner who I live with and my housemate Zoe and our tortoise, Gary Tortellini, um, <laughs> <laughs> which actually does make you go a bit bonkers when you just watch a tortoise walk around the room for nine hours a day in circles. But it's been all right. It's just been a bit odd. I think everyone's dealing with it differently. And I just feel very, very fortunate to be in a situation where I'm in, you know, a nice flat with my friends and we all get on really well. And I'm very, very lucky in this situation. Yeah, I'm very grateful that I love someone else as well, because, I mean, it it all came about so suddenly and it's wherever you happen to be. I mean, you know, if you're living away from family or if you're staying in a different place for a while or if you're in a temporary flat or something it it must be really stressful Mm. and how have you been feeling in terms of I suppose you know there's a lot of talk about feeling anxious or hopeless I've been quite inspired by some of your activity on social media raising awareness of say campaigns to get meals to the NHS and so on how how have you been feeling when processing all the news it's been an interesting one because I think I thought I was doing okay for the first week and I'm a kind of relentlessly positive person just by nature my mum's kind of you know unbelievably positive she had lots of health problems and all this stuff and she's like amazing person and I've kind of got her positivity from her so I thought in the first week I was like you know I need to be the kind of positive one in the household and like that's kind of my job as well as like a campaigner is I I have to like get through to tough situations and like be really positive about stuff and be like okay what can we do here what's what's valuable to do and then I think maybe what I did was I put probably too much pressure on myself to Mm. take it well and I for the first week I was kind of like it's okay we're really lucky we'll just stay in the house as long as it takes and then I probably didn't face a lot of the stuff that was coming up from it things like my mum's in the vulnerable category so I might not be able to see her for 
a year I don't know how long it's going to be and I lost all my work and then my lost my family lost all their work and there was all these financial pro- like burdens and worries and so then this kind of second week I sort of thought about all this stuff and then I just did that thing which I think we all do where because it's such an interesting and um, kind of unprecedented and upsetting situation we want to read as much about it as we can because then we feel mm. like we're not going to be caught out by something and I did that and that was a really bad idea because I did that for a few days and then about four days ago I just got really sad about it I think and I started getting a lot of I have quite a big following on social you know big enough and I've started getting a lot more messages of people being like please share this please do this why are you not saying this why are you not saying that um, obviously everyone's sitting at home with not that much to do so a lot more um, requests and DMs and all that and I just started to feel very very buried by all that so I've spent the last few days just sitting on the sofa watching movies trying to be kind to myself and trying not to feel like I'm not doing this right or not dealing with it right because I don't think there is a right way for us to deal with it so I think we just have to be really fair on ourselves. That's really interesting it does it, it does sometimes feel like there's a, a pressure to react a certain way particularly on social media on Instagram you see a lot of people kind of immediately spring into action with home workouts and new projects that they're doing now that they're at home and various sort of bits of online socializing and then if you wake up and you're in a kind of funk and you're spending the day feeling anxious or worried and worrying about family members you can almost sort of feel guilty it's a strange it's mm-hmm. a strange dynamic. And, and with the social media, I mean, you mentioned there you're following. I mean, you have uh, tens of thousands of followers on both Instagram and Twitter. Uh, in terms of moderating your use of it when when you're trying to be kind to yourself, have you rationed your use of it at all? Are you, are you doing anything like I, I know that I've got into this terrible habit of sort of doom scrolling at 11 at night, which is yeah. not a great thing to do. <laughs> yeah it's been hard I think I've kind of come up with the the things I need to do so okay I need to delete my apps more so after 6 p.m trying to delete Instagram it's mostly the the DMs it's mostly I think because of the work I do because I'm a campaigner and I'm a writer and because I'm known for um you know campaigning is about community Mm. more than most Mm. work and because of that it means that uh, I don't know how to articulate this in 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 a because it in a way that seems kind and fair because obviously I'm feeling uh, overwhelmed by it at the moment but I am so accessible to so many people in a way that is just I think often very different to how maybe other quote-unquote influencers are because it, whereas someone may talk to an influencer about oh you know where did you get that dress or oh I really like that interview you did can you point me in the direction of this book or whatever for me it's more hey I'm dealing with this really heavy sexual assault case like I need your advice or like how do I do this because this person Mm. is in this awful situation or I need your advice on this kind of heavy law case or whatever and it's been like that a lot recently and I I've tried to delete my apps but I do feel a real sense of service to people I think because of the work Mm. I do and I feel Mm. a real sense of obligation to be because I know how privileged I am and I know how lucky I am in this situation. So I feel a very big sense of, hey, listen, I'm the positive person that they're looking to to pep them up and I need to be that role. But I think I've been forced by my housemate and my uh, boyfriend in the past couple of days to be like, you actually have to look after yourself because you're not going to be that person if, you, if you're if you sitting on the sofa crying about it a couple of days a week, you know. So you have to mm. really, I have to really prioritise yourself. And I think we're, look, we're dealing with a really heavy situation, like you said there is a a pressure to 
be proactive and to be productive and I just feel like if that helps you that is excellent and you should do that because a lot of us need structure and that's brilliant but there shouldn't be a guilt if you're not because we have that enough under capitalism as it is and maybe this is the time where we can all reset for a second and do what we want to do that we never get to do instead of feel guilty for not producing enough or creating enough. And in terms of you mentioned the role of community from a sort of more positive point of view I suppose what role do you think community and activism can play in this current situation? I mean, although the news is very distressing, there are also some positives, you know, some incredible campaigns, things like the Clap for the Carers or fundraising campaigns, which probably shouldn't be needed, but it is heartening that people are doing the fundraising. You know, there's the uh, Meals for the NHS campaign, which you've been championing. What can people do who want to maybe make a positive change in this situation? Uh, I think it can play a massive role. I think, you know, I'm a baby campaigner. You know, people have been doing this their whole life, but we've been doing this for all different types of situations because what an activist or a campaigner does or anyone really who just wants to make a little change does is they see something that they're upset about or they disagree with and they galvanize people and they communicate it and they try and come up with a creative solution for it that's all it is and right now we're seeing so many things that maybe previously before this disaster we wished would have changed and we're now seeing Mm. temporary measures of those so we're seeing NHS staff not paying for their parking you know where Mm. we're seeing homeless people being sheltered suddenly over the weekend we're seeing all of these things that we wish would have happened previously that are now happening and that kind of begs the question well why can't they happen in regular life and Mm. so you know the meals for the NHS campaign I last weekend I sat in in my living room thinking how can I help here because that's what I do like how can I help and I came up with this idea to try and get the uh, delivery of Uber Eats and Just Eat to do an option where you can give a meal to an NHS worker and I kind of put that out and launched it and then the next day I found out about this campaign called Meals for the NHS which is doing the same thing just without those brands it's delivering food from local businesses to hospitals and I was like okay I'll get rid of my campaign they're already doing it let's champion these people because when we are in dire straits like we are now people are forced to think in different ways and they come up with brilliant ideas and it shows the real basic wonderful nature of humanity that we need to see all the time so this period I'm really hoping that when we come out of it we'll still want to fight for things like free parking for the NHS we'll want to fight for them to have compensation or a raise for what they've done we'll want to fight for them Mm. to be funded better like I think it will kick people's activism muscle up and go well, hang on, we've been shouting about helping the homeless for a year and now you're suddenly housing them all over the weekend. So you could have done something about it in London. So it really gives us that kind of inspiration to take this further. So I think it's so important and it makes you feel part of something. You know, it makes you feel part of a productive solution that is good for people. And that's really important to feel. When you were growing up, where did your desire to change things for the better come from? Of course, you're known for your phenomenal campaign to get upskirting criminalised. What was the first issue you can remember being aware of that made you want to make a difference? Oh, I think potentially I had a big poster on my bedroom wall of a tiger. (laughs) Everyone else had posters of like bands and cool stuff. I had a big poster of a tiger. And um, I remember reading about animal welfare, like WW 
WWF, is it? Is it WWF or WWE? Yes. There's one of them's wrestling and one of them's animals. <laughs> it's it's World Wildlife Fund, isn't it? Yes, yes. WWF. <laughs> I always get confused. Um, and I remember having that, those posters on my wall and being and finding out about how these animals are treated and getting really upset about it. And I remember doing something, but I can't remember what it was. I think maybe I just talked about it to my friends in school and we tried to raise some money or something. And then when I was about 14, I found out about Dogs Trust and I started paying like a Dogs Trust monthly thing. And I never really thought, I, I don't think I ever thought I'd go any further than that. I was just cared about things and I was very like empathetic, I guess. And, you know, very like, oh, I, I really want to help and I really want to do something. But I never thought I could. And then I guess um, probably because of my parents, my, my dad's a, a drummer. My mom was an architect, is now a nursery nurse. And my sister's a comedian. So I came from a very like creative family who did not non-traditional jobs. And so when I went into advertising, which is what I did after uni, I guess that was the period of time when I was like, oh, I can campaign to sell a brand. So why can't I campaign to talk about an issue? Mm. But I think it started just from that poster and learning about animals and caring about animals. And your book, Be the Change, details your journey into prominence as an activist, as well as how other people can get involved in activism. I wonder Mm. if we could just recap the story for those who aren't familiar your journey started when you were watching the killers with your sister at british summertime in hyde park can you tell me what happened yeah so we went uh 2017 to the festival and i'd been living abroad for a year working in greece on no money and i came back and had zero money and i hadn't seen my sister for a long time and we're like best friends so we forked out like 90 pounds to go to this festival for one day which was such a huge amount of money for me. And um, it was like a 30 degree day. It was really sunny. And we were in the crowd of about 60,000 people. We'd been there all day. They were headlining. We were waiting for them to headline. And there was a group of guys like around us in the crowd, as there usually is when you're in a crowd. And one of them like started sort of making jokes and being a bit rude and hitting on us. And we kind of said, no, nah, leave us alone. We haven't seen each other in a year. We just want to have a good night. And it went on and on. And then um one of them brushed up against me but I didn't think anything of it because I was in like a massive crowd um and then five minutes later I looked around the back of one of them and he was on his phone because they were all sort of laughing and I looked at his phone and he was laughing at this photo he he'd been sent on whatsapp which was a really well taken photo up someone's skirt of their crotch um and I knew it was me straight away and I grabbed the phone we got into a scuffle and then I ran through the crowd with the phone and he chased me through the crowd And then I got to the police um, and the police basically looked at the photo and said, "Okay, this photo is really not great, obviously. And I'm really sorry this happened to you, but it it shows more than you'd want it to show. But if you'd chosen not to wear knickers, we could do something about it. But you didn't. So there's nothing we can do. They basically implied that because it wasn't a graphic image, I couldn't prosecute or do anything about it. And I kind of I lost, I guess, for I snapped a bit. And was like, but this stuff happens all the time. And I never do what what I'm, I hear I'm meant to do, which is, you know, get the evidence, get the guy, get, you know, and I've handed everything into you and you still can't do anything. And I found out that upskirting wasn't a sexual offence in England and Wales, but I had been in Scotland for 10 years. Um, and I started a campaign to change that. And change law in April 2019. So that's good. <laughs> yes, no, that's that's great. And And what was the process behind going from that moment in the in the park uh, to actually mounting a campaign. I mean, because 
many people would have gone home and been frustrated, complained about it, maybe tweeted about it, maybe told the press about it, but uh, launching a petition, which eventually won well over 100,000 signatures, getting your lawyer, Ryan, how did it swing into action in that formal way? It's basically three days after the festival, they called me and said the case was dropped. And I, the police, yeah, the police, sorry, they called me and said, oh, you know, we've had, we've had this report, but we can't do anything about it. And the case is dropped. And I just snapped, like I said, for the first time in my life thought, but I did the thing that I would have usually been like, I wish I'd done that. I did it. And I can't do anything about it, even though I've done everything that's asked of me and more. So I found this photo on my phone that was me and my sister at the festival a selfie we'd taken and the guys who'd done it happened to be in the background of this photo and I put it on Facebook and I said oh the police can't help me um so maybe you know social media can can you please share this photo and and recognize these guys like identify these guys and it I got a whole bunch of people to share it and it went a little bit viral and then Facebook got in contact with me and deleted my post and said it violated their community guidelines and that my post was technically harassing them for putting it on right so in that moment you go okay so I can't put a photo of these guys faces on Facebook but they can take photos of my crotch and I can't do anything about it how is that fair so that kind of I guess made me even more angry and then I'd obviously seen from that post that there was some kind of power in putting this stuff out there on social because people had reacted to it in such a way you know Mm. obviously so many people had gone this had, had experienced some kind of I guess intrusion or violation or had some had something happened to them like most of us women do and so they reacted so greatly to that post that I thought hang on a second I was working in digital marketing at the time and I was like hang on a second I could just do more than that and see how big Mm. it gets so I started a social media campaign which was like you mentioned the petition I did Facebook posts um, across all three platforms Facebook Twitter and Instagram I started using them in the way they should be used they're all different obviously to kind of push this idea of why is upskirting not a sexual offence um, and then I did some uh, writing editorials I started calling uh, producers for TV um, and editorial platforms and I packaged up all the numbers from social because obviously that's the great thing about social right you, you start a conversation and you have the numbers yeah. so you can prove there's an audience there and from that social media campaign I started doing some media and then that was about a month in um, and once I started doing that media I realized okay, I'm kind of shouting about this, which is great, but me doing media isn't going to do anything more than awareness. It's not going to change the law of me doing this morning or or doing a social media campaign. So I kind of then packaged up that media and went to a bunch of law firms and said, look, loads of people care about this. And by that point, I had got some friends of mine who are law students to look into the law and and double check that what I thought I'd found was right, which was that there was a gap in the law. So I had kind of a corroborated theory on the law and a media campaign. So I went to a bunch of lawyers, um, law firms, and a lot of them I didn't really like. It felt like a bit of an ego trip, I think, for them because it was a big media thing. And then I got a DM from Ryan Whelan, who was a big global law firm. He slid into my DMs. (laughs) He basically said, can I help? I I just want to help. I don't even know what you need from me, but I just want to help. And I met with him for like three hours, and then we came up with a political strategy um, and a media strategy that complemented each other. and then we set about writing the new legislation or Ryan did and we got the best legal authorities in the UK to stand behind it before we even stepped in parliament so that when we did we were just giving them a solution to the problem we weren't going in there with more than one problem and then a kind of 18 month 
or I guess a bit less than that, legal battle, continue with the government. I was in there, I was working full time and I was in the Hazard Parliament most weeks trying to build an army of MPs to get behind it and to table bills. We had one bill tabled, which was objected to um, by a Conservative MP, which was very fun. And then we tabled a second bill and that took a year to get through. So it was really a social media campaign, a media campaign, and then a political campaign with a lawyer that we fought, just the two of us for kind of 18 months. You mentioned the the bill that was objected to. That was Christopher Choke blocked the progress. Yes, lovely uh, guy. It's, it became a huge point of controversy, and and his defence is always, and he, he he you know he's frequently criticised for blocking bills because he doesn't believe in things being nodded through private mm-hmm. members' bills being nodded through. Is that that's I think his his justification um, rather than sort of debated at length. You met up with him, didn't you? Can yeah, you so tell was, me about that? Yeah, yeah. So I was, I, we knew three days previous to him objecting that he was going to object. Um, and Conservative government and all the other opposition parties tried to stop him multiple days before it happened because it had already become a big story and, and we'd already got every party on board. He was the only person who was making a struggle for us. And we got the government to back the campaign on the Thursday, which meant that if the government back a campaign when you've got a private member's bill going through, and a private member's bill is something that can amend or change a law, but any MP can table a private member's bill. So you really need the government to back yours because that means they're going to find time for it and make sure it goes through. Mm. So we got the government to back it on the Thursday. Um, I knew he was going to object the next day, but I had to get up and do all this media on the Friday morning being like, she's done it. The government have backed the bill. We're going to change the law, knowing he was going to object at 3 p.m. that day. And that it was all going to come crashing down. And the reason I had to do that was because I needed to get people really excited about the law change so that when he objected, everyone went up in arms about it, which made it then very difficult for them to not do something. Mm. So uh, we went into the house. I was actually doing a live TV interview and I got a text from Ryan saying he is objecting. We've just had confirmation and it's happening within the hour. So I kind of r- ripped the mic off this interview and kind of ran to the house, watched him object. We came out the house, he was sitting there in the lobby and I kind of went over to him and said, I'd just really like to know why you objected to this bill. And he said, which one? And I said, because he obviously objects to many of them. And I Mm. said, the upskirting bill, the Voyeurism Act. And he said, oh, I haven't read it. And I remember just feeling so just tiny and deflated because it was a year of my life and he had not even read this two-page bill before he did, mm. objected to it and that meant that it was dead that he'd killed it and when the media came out you know he said yeah it shouldn't a bill shouldn't be able to go through on a Friday without reasonable debate but that that doesn't hold any water because he'd been in the house where we'd been in for six months having conversations with MPs every single day this bill had been debated behind closed doors between every party mm. and if he hadn't objected to it on that Friday the next stage would have been debate so there's no one in the in the house that you'll find that can tell you why he did that technically but we do think it's because he's tabled 47 private members bills himself and I don't really think he likes the idea of someone who isn't a parliamentarian coming in and being able to get a bill through that easy it just doesn't mm. sit right with him I don't think and then Theresa May's government put it before Parliament. Uh, how was that? Did you did you actually meet Theresa May or have any direct correspondence with her? 
Um, not with Theresa. I think, I mean, generally in these situations, you're working more with the Ministry of Justice and directly with MPs and ministers mm. than you are working with Theresa May. I'm not sure how much she had her hands on it. She was aware, she was just aware that it was a big story and she had to speak on it. We went in the next day. So obviously that happened on the Friday. I had the weekend where I basically slept. I think I did 47 interviews in one day after that happened, which was unbelievable and then I went to see Beyonce that night so that was quite emotional (laughs) (laughs) I took an 80 pound Uber all the way there because I was like I need to charge my phone I need to sit in a car and not speak to anyone (laughs) I yeah went on the Monday me and Ryan met with the justice minister who was Lucy Frazier at this point she was the reason why we got the law changed because I worked with two justice ministers uh, David Linton and Dominic Raab before her who had no interest in this and when she came in she realized it was important so we went on the Monday um, we basically said we need to table a government bill because everyone's really upset about this and this is a massive story and all of you wanted to change it anyway. And a government bill is a is a bill that can't be objected to by MPs. It's mm. it's pushed through by the ministers, it goes above MPs' heads and it, they just make it, they, they change the law. And she agreed and said, yeah, I think we need to just take action on this and get it done as quick as possible. So we tabled a government bill on the Monday and then we saw that through its 12 stages for the next year, all the while with the minister behind it. And that kind of felt like the last stage, even though obviously it was a year long process. And then obviously all those things like Theresa May and all the support obviously helped. But it was really Lucy Fraser and the ministers pushing that through for us through all the uh, House of Parliament and the House of Lords. Do you get nervous when you're dealing with, I suppose, seasoned politicians and then also the media? I mean, you mentioned just now doing live interviews and ripping the mic off. I think I'd be pretty daunted if I had to do endless press interviews and, and also confront you know, confront parliamentarians and challenge them uh, in the way you did Christopher Choate. Where where does your kind of grit for that come from? It was very intimidating being there because I'm a working class, northern, not very academic, honestly, very average in school, very creative, but I'm not, I don't exist in those spaces. I'm not that person. I don't know how you get there. So it was really scary being in those rooms, but I was very lucky because Me and Ryan from the outset set out our roles very clearly to them. I think often in these situations, and you're going when you're going into these spaces, you're you're nervous to be in. You try and be everything that you think they'll want you to be. So I could have gone into those spaces and been the girl who knows everything about the law change and and trying to be the lawyer in the situation and trying to get every question right. And I had to realise that I didn't need to be that because I have had a lawyer with me. (laughs) I needed to let Ryan do his job. And mm. when things came up about legislation, I would say, well, I'm not the lawyer in this situation. Ryan, what do you think on that? And I was the passionate campaigner who was there, who had um, spearheaded the campaign and knew why this was so important to people. And I think for the first three months, I tried to be both parts and tried to be both roles and tried to impress them on everything I said. And that really paralyzed me. And it was only until I realized, no, actually, my role here is is still important just because I don't know all the academic language doesn't make me less important I founded this campaign I know why this is important to people I know this problem better than anyone and I just need to play my part well and not try and do everything perfect the real like bravery though I think in terms of doing all the media and talk and confronting Christopher Chope I was going to call him Chris then never done that in my life (laughs) Chris and Chope I think all that came from the amount of stories I'd received as soon as I started the social media campaign just thousands of people messaging me saying it happened to them and kids you know children were messaging me from south london from a school where 
the head teacher had been upscaling the kids for months and they found thousands mm-hmm. of photos and they couldn't arrest it, they couldn't do anything about it. So you've got like 12 year old kids messaging you being like, please do something about this because I, I feel sick going to school. Those kids can't even vote, you know? So there was a real like, I was angry for them and it and it put everything in perspective for me. You know, I felt like the little scared girl in Parliament, sure, but then it puts it into perspective when you have hundreds of kids messaging you. Then you start to go, no, actually, I do have, I do know what I'm talking about. I have a laptop. I have a bit of, you know, um, self-belief. You know, I have a democratic voice. At least I can go into these spaces and have this conversation. They can't even get close. So I guess the bravery sort of came from those stories and trying to do it for them, really. Can we talk a little bit about social media again? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you mentioned there that the kind of positive role it played in the campaign and also the people messaging you and 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 earlier you you mentioned the people contacting you about say problems they're having campaigns that you could be working on it's quite a big responsibility how do you deal with it when people are getting in in touch because presumably sometimes you're not in a position you can't be an expert on all all things what do you what do you do I often say that because I think that's a really important thing for people to realise is that because I've changed one thing doesn't mean I can change everything or know how every law works or know how every situation works. I know that and that's kind of it. Mm. And I will often say to people when they come to me for advice, I'll say, okay, well, I think it's wonderful that you feel like you're in a space where you can talk about this. That's the first thing because that's hard to do. Secondly, I'll try, I'll, signpost them to people who can help so obviously I know people now in this industry who work for -for not-for-profits or organizations or support lines and stuff Mm. and I'll try and signpost them to someone who can help because I'm not qualified to help in every situation and I'm also not qualified to you know sort of be a therapist and give people advice Mm. I don't want to give people the wrong advice Mm. um but it is a it is a lot of pressure I think and that pressure comes from both I need to show up for people because how can I expect them to show up for me if I don't but also I need to show up for them in the right way and not just be spouting advice on everything because I'm not I'm not uh, an expert on everything and I, I think that would be arrogant of me to think I was. And what about uh, trolling and abuse? I mean, depressingly and yet inevitably, at the time that you were pushing for this change, you received a lot of trolling and derogatory messages online. Do you still receive those and and either way how did and how do you deal with it I don't receive them anymore I mean I get the odd one but it's few and far between through the mention it's when I do media I get them when I do tv or radio or anything like that so I think at the time during the campaign there was so often it honestly felt like I, I say often in interviews like it was 18 months of rape threats that's what it feels like Mm-hmm. Though obviously it wasn't every day and between that was victim blaming. It's not a shame and it wasn't always rape threats, but it feels like that because it feels so big to get that amount of stuff to one person. I didn't deal with it very well, if I'm honest, and I don't think it's helpful. A lot of the advice is very helpful that you get told. So you get told to ignore it. Um, you know, oh, ignore the bad ones. For every bad one, there's loads of good ones. Okay, well, that's easy to say. But when you're pulling your phone out to talk to your dad and there's some, some guy is threatening you ready to rape you, it's not very easy to ignore that. That's very tough. I used to try and respond to people. I didn't respond to online abuse, heavy abuse, but I used to try and respond to people who were being really mean and trying to 
you know, well, why do you think this should change? It's not important, blah, 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 blah. It's not a big deal. Like, get over it, swear pants, etc. I used to try and educate people, and then I realized that was a really bad idea because a lot of people don't want to be educated. They just want a reaction. So I've kind of stopped that now. Mm. But I think probably the best technique I had, which is really simple but really helped, was that when I'd get something abusive or unkind, I would write my response because it like spend time over it like a really good response but if I sent it I would feel like wow they can't say anything I've really got that there really helped and educated and solved it and then I would just screenshot it and delete the comment so I felt like I'd sent it but I hadn't I'd got everything Mm. out I needed to get out but I hadn't started some kind of uh, keyboard warrior war but I don't get as much now but I think now what I struggle with is I get a lot of criticism about a lot of things that maybe necessarily I don't deserve so you know I could take a video in my house and someone will message me saying why have you got plastic bags in the background of this video like you meant like you should be reducing your plastic blah, blah, blah. or I could do you know this campaign I did I st- or idea for the NHS to get them food I started last week I got about 30 messages within an hour of, of um, launching it with kind of oh, why do you only care about NHS workers? Why won't you do this? The campaign should do this better. Why isn't it when you thought mm. of this, et cetera, et cetera. And although mm. that's not abusive and it's not technically mean and it's just, I guess, criticism, mm. it gets very exhausting to receive criticism from 50,000 people 24 hours a day whenever they have an idea. So I think we actually all probably have a responsibility because when we talk about online abuse or we talk about kind of being a citizen online, we talk about the worst case scenario like the rape threats, like the victim blaming when you're a woman online. But we don't often talk about how the access we feel we have to people means we feel entitled to hold them to a, a such a high standard that maybe we're not even holding ourselves often. And we really have to get better at deciding, is this important for me to to tell someone? Do they need to hear, you know, do you need to message someone saying, well, I, I did respect you, but now I don't because of this. Oh, I don't agree with you because of this. Not necessarily. Not everyone's going to agree with you. We don't need to tell them everything you think every day. And I think we need to get better at doing that and realising that that is still a person and we don't necessarily, although they're in the public sphere, well, we all are, but we don't necessarily have the entitlement to tell them everything we think. And I think that's what I'm struggling with now more than abuse at the moment because that has thankfully stopped. It's also interesting because it feeds into this idea that you have to be perfectly pure to be involved in any kind of campaigning this idea of the kind of perfect activist that you can't Mm. campaign to change one thing unless everything is in check and you often see that charge of hypocrisy put to people when they try and do something positive whether it's green campaigning or or whatever and and then they're called out because they maybe I don't know bought a dress from Zara or got a flight or whatever but but the problem with that I suppose is that you know if 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 you can only want to change something if everything in your own life is perfectly in order no one should ever change anything I mean you'd start to say what is the point of doing the recycling because I have I still use electricity do you think that's a problem yeah I do I think I think the idea that we all have to be perfectly sanitized and show up and be perfect online is a massive problem I think people who are influencers or in the public sphere online need to be more honest about you know the duality of themselves so like I can see why you would want to present a sanitized version of yourself and a perfected version of yourself because of the feedback and the criticism and the you know screams of hypocrisy you might get but it's better for everyone if we can be honest and be like hey I don't know this I'm not doing this well I'm really good at this not so good at this 
I'm learning, I messed up, hands up, you know? So I think we all need to do that as much as we can. And then I think as people who consume that content, we need to be really aware that everyone is at a different stage learning this and everyone is trying and learning at a completely different rate and with a completely different context and set of circumstances. So you're never going to find someone who's doing something perfectly. And look, like as an activist and a campaigner, I have very strong opinions on many, many things. Like you would struggle to ask me something and I won't have a, a an answer that I've really sat and thought about if it's about, you know, basic or the kind of main social injustice issues we have. Yes, you know, with um, climate change or climate breakdown, I find it, I haven't bought, you know, fast fashion for two years. I buy all secondhand clothes. That is a personal choice because fast fashion is a bigger footprint in the aeronautical industry and all that kind of stuff. So I don't understand how you can go, okay, I, I really care about the environment, but I am buying loads of fast fashion because it's one of the biggest polluters, right? That's how I, that's what I believe. It doesn't mean that every person who does it, I need to tell them that on the internet. Mm. So you can have these ideas and these opinions, but it doesn't mean you need to call everyone out because we, we've all become an expert on everything. Everyone mm. on the internet is now an expert. Well, you shouldn't be doing this. Well, you shouldn't be doing this. Unless I'm holding myself to the standard that I'm telling people to hold themselves to, I'm not going to speak on it. And I think that's the thing we need to really think about is what am I doing? How am I showing up here? Am I trying my best? Well, then that's good enough. And I don't need to go out to other people and start reining people in unless it, unless they're doing something which is, you know, seriously bad. But even then, you know, there's people who are doing stuff online that I know quite well and they might do something that is kind of questionable. And even if they were, I would privately message them. I'd probably send a voice note so they could hear my voice. So they knew I wasn't, you know, I, they could they could take that in because in writing it's quite hard. I probably send mm. a voice note and approach it in a really kind way and try and call them in more than calling them out, even if I did think that was terrible. Just have patience for people. I think we need to be uh, fair with each other, hold people accountable, but do it in the right way because no one learns if you just treat someone like rubbish and make them feel bad about themselves and shame them. These are all themes that are touched on in the book, but you also have some very practical advice like, you know, writing press releases or the importance of of branding two campaigns. I know you used pink and red as a, a bit of a motif in your upskirting campaign. What made you want to put what you'd learnt into a book? Because it, it, it's a hugely inspiring read and probably quite a good one as people are stuck at home wanting to maybe make a difference. What made you want to put all that into a book? Well, it's quite funny anecdote probably. Um at the beginning of the campaign, like when I just had the idea, when I thought, oh, maybe I'll try and change a law. I don't know if I'll do it, but I'll give it a go. I Googled, how do you change a law? And obviously, like nothing came up at all. And I was like, oh, okay, I have to do this myself. And the things that did come up were long papers, deep reads on, you know, uh, parliamentary process and uh, scannings of like legal documents none of which I could read because I'm not a naturally academic person and I really struggled to consume that. So when the campaign ended, I thought, okay, well, can I make something? Can I put everything I've learned in the last two years, all the general advice that anyone could take? Obviously, depending on your campaign, there'll be a million different strategies, but all the general advice that could help someone just to get started, the most basic advice that can help, can I put all that in one place? make it super accessible to read. So the parts on social media, you know, the head of the commission at the House of Lords could understand it. 
she's in her 70s and she doesn't use the internet but she could get it and all the stuff about strategy could a 15 year old read it and think okay I have some kind of concept of how to do this but could it be detailed enough and inspiring enough that someone my age nearly you know in late 20s or in their 30s who wants to do something felt like they were reading something that was for them too so it was just about trying to put everything into one place and make it accessible and interesting but not intimidating because I think in these spaces so much of this work is intimidating because you think Mm. you have to be this brilliant genius mind actually it's just about learning the basics of lots of different skills and throwing enough at the wall until something sticks and learning as you go that's what activism is no one can do it when they start they just come up with an idea and they try and make it happen that's all it is so the book was a way to get that kind of accessibly into people's hands and make them feel I guess supported when they start and what advice would you give someone who is looking to do something positive now just the very first thing that they could do my best advice would be to choose what you want to do really wisely I think often we have a propensity to kind of look around and pick and choose something that we want to solve and actually the best campaigns and the best ideas work because the person who picked them is best placed to run it so with the upskirting campaign I was the best person to run that because I'd been upskirt so I knew what it was like I worked in social media I, I understood you know the landscape if I pick something else you know got it I, I care, I read about FGM and what's happening with that, which is female genital mutilation, and I want to help, but I'm not best place to solve that. Nimco Ali is, who, who was cut when she was younger and has lived in that culture. So mm. can you pick something that is part of you and your story or your family story or your community story? Because if you do, you won't run out of passion, and that's something I get asked all the time, is how did you not stop? Like, how did you not give up? And I was like, I picked something that I was so angry about that I couldn't give up. <laughs> because it was part of my story and my life. It happened to me. So I think pick the right thing. Pick something that feels manageable. You don't have to go massive. You don't have to change the law first. Activism's like a muscle. You can you can really work it and work on it. But yeah, pick something that is yours, because you'll never run out of passion then. Can I ask what's next for you? Obviously, everyone's plans have been thrown into doubt somewhat by <laughs> the current state of affairs what's the state of play for you well there was a few hand-picked very exciting things happening which obviously now aren't which is obviously sad but no big loss um, in this situation so there will be a delay but I have a a slot on BBC Radio 5 Live that I've been doing since November uh, which is called Gina's Game Changers which is basically about getting ordinary people who are doing great stuff whether that's a campaigner or a community project or you know just two guys who had an idea and inviting them on the show and talking about how they started it why they're doing it what they are aiming for and checking back in with them because I think we just don't hear about all these wonderful people I see them every day I work with hundreds of brilliant people who are trying to make the world a better place and you never hear about them because they don't make the news and so of course we all feel like we can't change stuff but then once you start to hear these stories and how they did it, you go, oh, I could do that. Oh, I could come up with an idea. So I'm doing some broadcasting, which is basically about platforming all of these people in communities who are doing amazing stuff and trying to get them some kind of exposure to A, help with what they're doing and help them finish what they started and to B, get some more positive stories out there because I know we need balance, but every story is a negative. And I think you can really inspire people by showing them ordinary people doing brilliant things. And I'm also doing, I work with UN Women, 
I've just been made one of their new uh, Changemaker ambassadors, so that's great. Um, so I'm working with them on a long-term basis. Really beautiful collaboration, just coming up with ideas. What can we make happen? How can we help what's already happening, people who are already doing this work? So I'll always be campaigning. But then on the top of that, I think I'll be doing a lot of um, broadcasting to try and show you these people who did something like me, because all of us could be that if we wanted to be. And I asked your advice for getting involved in campaigning. But one final piece of advice that I'd like to ask before I let you go, which is a version of a question I ask everyone, which is if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? What would you say? Stop trying to be so cool all the time. Like stop being (laughs) desperate to be cool. (laughs) I was so not cool in school. I was so uh, rejected and badly bullied in school and I thought it was because I I was too loud, I was too uh, excitable, too uh, enthusiastic, cared about things too much, which wasn't cool. Um, And I would tell myself not to lose that because that's the reason I'm doing the work I am today because I care about people and I want to help. And I don't Mm. think that's a bad thing. And I don't think... It's, I don't think it's cool to be resigned. I don't think it's cool to not care about stuff. I actually think it's very cool to care about people. And if you're loud and enthusiastic and passionate, you have to keep that because that's the only thing you can't teach. You can teach everything else, but you can't teach people to care about stuff. I think that's a great message and a great note to end on. Gina, thank you so much. You've been thank you. so, so fascinating to talk to. I really appreciate it. And to everyone listening, Be The Change, a toolkit for the activist in you is out now. So that's it from us. Thank you so much for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Zania. And more importantly, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate or review it. It really helps other people find it and its position in the charts. And I'd be very, very grateful. So until next week, thank you very much and goodbye.